You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer, the editor of THE Campus. And I'm Miranda Prince, senior content curator for THE Campus. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is that time of year again, time for the THE Awards for the UK and Ireland, an event that some have called the Oscars of higher education. We'll all meet in central London for a glamorous ceremony on the 17th when the winners will be revealed. And we've got resources on THE campus from a number of our shortlisted nominees, which we'll link to in the notes for this episode. Today, however, in honor of the awards and what they celebrate, we've spoken to two of last year's winners. Miranda, how about you go first? Who did you speak with? I spoke to Anna Wallace, who is a Knowledge Exchange and Impact Officer and an Honorary Research Fellow in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Nottingham. And Anna was part of a team from the University of Nottingham and Nottingham Trent University, which won last year's THE Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Local Community. And this was actually for research which was led by Louise Mullaney and Loretta Trickett. I should note their names in here. And it was looking at gender hate crime and its, and its impact, which I'd like to leave it to Anna to tell us more about that. But one of the things she also was able to offer was really useful insight into what contributes to effective and successful community engagement. So let's hear from Anna. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hello. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm talking to you because you're part of a team who a year ago took home an award for a grassroots local community project, which was looking at gender hate crime. And this highlighted the issue of street harassment and violence and abuse of women and girls in public spaces in Nottingham. That's a very, very brief summary. And I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about exactly how this research was carried out and what it revealed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my role on the project was to be the faculty's impact officer. I supported our key academics with thinking how we apply the research and how we roll it out. But really, the way we carried out the research was really innovative from the outset. And it kind of ties into this idea of engaged art disciplines. What does it mean? Well, basically, we're trying to do research which responds to social needs or cultural needs um, that we notice in the community. And that was very much the aspect that really made this research pop and become something really special. Now, Professor Louis Mullaney, who is the academic here at the University of Nottingham, is actually a social linguist. And she spends a lot of time working on the details of how people use languages in the workplace and how sometimes the way you communicate can have some meanings which you might not even even foresee it has. For example, can be discriminatory or can convey some ideas which are perhaps not really according to what we would think is equality, right? So um, having had a lot of um, time spent working with different industries and and thinking about language in the workplace and gender roles and how it all plays out, Louise got interested in uh, work that was ongoing since, I guess, maybe 2015-16 in Nottingham and led by a number of, of people in the community, particularly a lady called Susanna Fish, who's got an OBE and she was the uh, previous uh, chief constable for Nottinghamshire. And what they've actually done is that they were able to roll out a law, which would uh, mean locally in Nottinghamshire, that actually misogyny or gender-based um, hate crime is actually a recognised crime. Now, what happened then is that actually the uh, people who installed the new law, they needed to sort of 
get a bit of a chance of looking back at what happened and understand, okay, how do we evaluate this? Is it really a good thing that we've sort of labeled this as a hate crime? What do people think about it? How do they respond? Is there a way in which we can use both discipline of law? So here are a collaborator from Trent University um, and also social linguistics to understand what is the impact of that new law on both the police force, on the victims and on the general public and their perceptions of, of gender-based um, crime. So all of that sort of led as a very it led into a very sort of interesting starting point where the two disciplines of uh, law, uh, social linguistics, and also um, the expertise of someone who was in the police force for years really came together and enabled us to carry out some really exciting research. So just to clarify, the research that then went on to win the award was actually focused on looking at the impact that the law had had it was the um, research that looked at the impact of the law to really understand and evaluate what sort of significance it has had for the local community, to look at the pros and the cons of it, and to see uh, what was the response to that um, among the key constituencies that were involved in, let's say, the law. And, and what yeah. were the main findings? Is it ongoing? <laughs> yes, apparently the work is um, the work is very much still ongoing. So ever since the law was introduced in Nottingham, ten other police forces have taken it on. And in 2021, there was um, a debate in the Houses of Lords, in the House of Lords, and in the Houses of Parliament regarding whether this should be rolled out um, nationally. Which actually, even though this wasn't passed, what it really did highlight is potentially the issues of what would it mean if then. Um, hate crime, like uh, gender-based hate crime, was subsumed under the hate crime bill, as opposed to a number of other different um, types of crime against, against women. So it really highlighted the issues and really made the uh, policymakers think very critically about how to best solve the problems of, uh, and think about across what sort of suite of different laws things should be considered to really make this a comprehensive way of looking at this sort of issue. And the main sort of um, findings were really around and what happens um, when you have that sort of space where both the gender-based violence but also ethnically based violence come together? So for example, what is the situation of women um, of colour in terms of gender sort of based hate crime and how those different things in, in interrelate between each other? There was a lot about effects or the sort of negative results of uh, sexual stereotyping and legitimising linguistic uh, violence in communities. And there was also a lot about the language and street harassment. So what is the language of street harassment? How do you recognize it? What are the sort of key details of what's happening um, and how can those be encoded so that it's easier to recognize these sort of things as a hate crime? Wow, so covering a lot of ground there. The impact that you briefly described, the fact that this has really gained traction among lawmakers and policymakers, it's the holy grail of research really, so amazing progress. I wanted to ask, because the reason this mm -hmm. won the THE award a year ago, was due to the community engagement element. Can you tell me a bit more about that? How did the researchers work with the community on this? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question, you know, and I often see that this very much depends on the type of the project and the sort of objectives that you want to achieve. Because 
Professor Mulaney was uh, looking at uh, things surrounding law and, and changing sort of uh, legislation around a particular issue. The sort of key stakeholders were uh, charities, NGOs. We worked with a local MP as well who had a say and who had leverage in helping us to support a particular sort of strand of research or particular strand of thinking. And particularly working with the uh, chief constable for Nottinghamshire was particularly important to us because we were able to provide ammunition and provide evidence which would enable her to advocate for um, certain issues within the police force, such as prevalence of gendered hate crime. And was there much interaction with people on the ground to kind of gather the evidence of this? Absolutely. As part of the evaluation, um, there was an extensive uh, mission to um, collect information and to collect responses from members of the public. So speaking with people who maybe not have, haven't been affected personally by it, but have some sense of how they respond to the idea of, of uh, misogyny being treated as a hate crime. So there was a lot of that. And there were other aspects, which I think were very sort of well designed because they were very visual. So if you um, if you look it up, you can actually find a very nifty little cartoon that represents some of the key concepts from uh, Professor Mulaney's research. And I think just the power of the visual medium and the very sort of uh, precise and snappy dialogues that were encapsulated really provided a good sort of snapshot of what it looks like in practice and how it can be mitigated against. Great. Well, um seek out that cartoon and I'll make sure there's a link included on the podcast page for anyone listening. This is a topic that is difficult for a lot of people to talk about. Mm -hmm. So it's not the easiest thing to engage people on because it is, you know, an emotive, triggering topic. So what do you think it was that made this research project so effective? I think a lot of it really stemmed from being really focused on achieving real value and real change in the world. And I think very often when you speak with researchers, you realize that if you can stand behind something that you think is right, that you believe in, it really provides you with so much more encouragement and strength to carry on working. And I find that very often if you do something not for the reason being yourself, but for a value that lies outside of yourself, it really propels researchers to do things which sometimes, you know, you wouldn't think are possible. I think the second aspect of why the collaboration was so successful was because we were in the right place at the right time. And um, the professors that we worked with were able to utilize their existing expertise to really carefully think about how they can apply their knowledge to um, provide the sort of evidence that was necessary to move things forward. And I guess The third aspect of it was the fact that we already had an established sort of understanding or or established sort of areas where people were already campaigning for certain things to happen. So it was the case that, you know, together with, you know, the community campaigners, together with people who are community leaders, but also with academics, we're able to sort of bring all those different areas of expertise and really think, okay, how, how can we evidence things in a way that's convincing, in a way that's thorough, and in a way that will provide us with a response that we need. Of course, and that is essentially the result of working on something for a very long time. And that expertise doesn't happen overnight. That knowledge and expertise you you have to build in this being a fantastic example of where it can lead. Why would you say in a, in a broader context, so not focused on this particular research project, why do you think community engagement is so important? Yeah, and there are very many reasons. I think what we are witnessing is really some really interesting 
change or an interesting shift in the way research operates at the moment. And you will see that more and more universities are now talking about their civic mission or a civic duty. So in a way, I think we're finding that we are more and more aware and more and more thinking about our responsibilities to our local communities and universities as universities and i think partially if you look back at the activities of universities during covid it really became very clear that we are very often important aspects or important partners for our communities and for the different organizations that we work with another aspect of why community engagement is really getting more important is because we do not operate in a void, right? You you have that old tired stereotype of, you know, the ivory towers and universities doing things for their own sake, but actually that is definitely not the case anymore. And things like um, the Research Excellence Framework, things like Times Higher Education Awards, and all these different sort of um, initiatives which we see around us are really highlighting the value of working together, of working for um, a greater good, and really for thinking about how we engage the people who live um, and operate around universities and also further afield. And how do we think about, you know, how does that research work for them? What value can we deliver outside of universities? So there are many different reasons why this is becoming more and more important now, not least even thinking about what does it mean to democratize access to knowledge or who produces knowledge? So, right. I think it's very old sort of slightly tired now paradigm of thinking that it's only the published research or books or articles that count for, you know, what would be the canonical knowledge. Actually, there's a lot of knowledge being held by communities, communities that we work with. And especially as we think about the legacies of universities and how we work with communities in the past, you will notice that there are aspects that, well, sometimes maybe researchers were a bit extractive in the way they approach communities or how they gathered information from them. And there is definitely much more of a sense of what are the ethics of working with communities, of the sort of give and take, thinking about what sort of power dynamics we can see between working as a university and working perhaps as an underfunded or a community organization and what that means. So all of these sort of, um, let's say, intellectual challenges of working with community partners are making it a much more interesting and much more robust field to operate within and also a much more attractive sort of offering for researchers because ultimately there are so many questions and so many different ways of working that still need to be answered and still need to be developed. Yeah I realised as I asked that question that we could probably speak for about an hour on that subject alone and this greater engagement with the world beyond the campus walls and awareness that as you say no one does function in a void, an institution, an academic or anyone else. Um, and thus, sort of collaborative outward looking approach is so much more fruitful. This is such a great example of where it can pay dividends as well in terms of the results. So taking your answer there and, and then moving on to some slightly more practical pointers. Easy to say universities should encourage community engagement, academics should engage in community engagement, but what would you say are actually the key foundations of good community engagement? This is a this is a very, very good question actually. And to some extent the answer will depend who you depend on who you ask and what sort of experiences they have had, right? There are so many different types of communities, so many different ways of working with them, that it's actually very difficult to compile all of the experiences together and give a definite um, answer. I think the sort of really key point is really to build your project with community participation in mind from the outset, right? It's very difficult to retrofit things on the back of a project which you design and which is perfectly complete 
or you think is perfectly complete without community engagement, because then it's very easy to design something that is a little bit tokenistic because you haven't really had a chance to think about, you know, how is that community going to be involved? To what extent do you want them to participate in, in making decisions about the research project? Is it appropriate? You know, are you just communicating knowledge or are you trying to co-create the knowledge uh, with them, right? So some of the really cool ways of doing this could be even to co-author with some of your community uh, partners. There's also, I notice a lot of researchers now really trying to think very critically about what it means to be a researcher with a massive institutional backing behind you, maybe a very prestigious or a very old, old organization behind you, to then come into a community and the sort of dynamics that you've got, you've got there. And and I think it's always really important to think about the ethics of what you do. Are you being extractive? Are you acknowledging different forms of, of knowledge production? Are you really thinking about the long-term benefit of the communities? What is the sort of what could be the negative implication of what happens, right? So are you going to help them maintain their legacy and, and their sort of knowledge and, and their sort of histories and heritage? Or are you just trying to just nip in and out? So there are all these sort of different things that need to be considered to really think about designing good quality community engagement. Another thing which is really crucial, I think, is to think um, about all of the sort of areas of expertise and all of the sort of areas of support that you will need around you to really give your communities justice. So do you need a community liaison officer? Do you need to um, have a little bit of budget, for example, cover your community's participation um, in events? Do you need to um, have someone to hand to uh, maybe speak the language of a given community or someone who lives locally where the community resides? So it's all about that sort of capacity that is really there and needs to be there if you want to work with a community in a fruitful and extensive manner. So if it's just you and you're nipping in and out, it just might not cut it. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think going back to your original point, really design design with that in mind, then obviously you're likely to bring in the necessary support and resources to make sure it is a sustainable and kind of mutually beneficial project with long term with a long term legacy that everyone can be proud of. When you talk about that that legacy and that making sure there is a benefit to the community and it isn't simply extractive. Obviously, with some research projects, there is a quite clear and immediate benefit to um, potential community participants, whether that be individuals or organisations. But I imagine for other research projects where maybe they are focused on collecting information that could in the future really inform positive changes, but might not have a kind of immediate effect, that might be a harder sell. So how would you manage that or advise someone else to Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is really around managing expectations and be being very upfront about the sort of timescales that you've got in mind, right? So in my work, very often, I um, I almost think along two different timelines. So you've got the long-term timeline of what you want to achieve long-term and how it could work, what sort of partners you need to be working with at the different stages of, you know, working towards um, your goal. But on the second timeline is really looking at the smaller packages of work that you can deliver um you know, as you're working towards that long-term objective. And it can be really tricky if you're in that sort of stage of data collection or a little bit of maybe scouting out and figuring out what's actually happening and what might be possible. And I think here is really critical that you maintain communication lines with the community, right? So don't just disappear for six months. Just keep people, keep the key uh, contacts updated on what you're planning on doing, why you're planning on doing it, how long it's uh, likely to take, just so that, 
you know, you are there at the back of their minds and that it is clear that you are planning something a little bit more long term. And everybody will understand that sometimes, you know, things take time, especially when you need to procure funding, when you need to, um, you know, lay the groundwork that would enable you to maybe apply for a grant that will uh, support a much larger project um, in the future. Just treat them and talk to them like you would talk to someone that you're collaborating with, because people, if you explain to them where you stand and, and what's happening, they will they will get behind you. What is the worst is if you just disappear for nine months and then say, here I am back again. And it might not really uh, work very well. Yeah. So honesty, good communication, kind of transparency, transparency. and not picking people up and dropping them. Obviously, inconsistency would not be helpful. On that, you actually flagged in a resource that you wrote for us last year. Uh, one of the points you made, which really stuck with me, was that institutional memory is short, community memory is not. And thus, project-based work and academics often moving on between institutions can really damage community relations if it results in, in initiatives just being dropped. So how might a university mitigate this since they obviously cannot stop academics moving between roles. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that you, you can do. So first of all, it's good to be inclusive and bring um, your collaborators on board. So you're not only introducing perhaps one colleague, but you're working as a team with uh, with other people, right? So even if you move to a different institution, that person which is now at a different institution they very likely might want to carry on working with the same community. So in a sense, the relationship is both lodged within the institution, but also with the individual, especially working behind the scenes um, in, in supporting research. You really start valuing, you know, people who have been in the role for a little bit longer and people who make conscious effort to write down their knowledge and to write down their sort of connections. And as people are changing roles, to then have that moment of reflection and have that moment where you can introduce the new person to that particular community and say, look, I, I will be moving on, but this person is now taking the role of so-and-so and they might be able to um, keep, in, keep in touch with you. So there are different ways of mitigating against it, but, but there's a really good report called the Common Cause Report. And I highly recommend... Um, reading it so I'm, I'm a I'm a learner from it and I really hands down this is, this is the best resource possible and you will see um, some really good examples of dealing with these sort of issues from that report so I do highly recommend uh, looking at it but from from the sort of practice that I try to implement is just to really not treat relationships with communities as um, assets maybe or as items on your inbox but as I remember that you are these are people these are your collaborators these are your partners so treat them with the same respect like you would treat um, academics who are moving between uh, posts. Yeah, of course. There is a lot of talk around the, the need to build respectful relationships and, and build trust and, you know, gain a proper understanding of the individual and the community's maybe needs and hopes related to whatever it is that you are focused on. In practical terms, do you have any tips for how a research team might actually uh, go about doing this within realistic time and workload constraints? Yeah, so I guess my top tips would be to um, not try and hoard the relationship as just one person who is the keeper of the relationship. Introduce other people 
that are relevant to your research project into the relationship so that when it comes to communication you can perhaps juggle it a little bit so i'm now working on a project as a community liaison officer and there are a couple of us on the project but actually rather than me being the key and only sort of point of contact for work with communities, our sort of connection lines are distributed, right? So very often we will be emailing or we'll be communicating or having calls or meeting people. And even maybe if some of the people on the research team might not be immediately highly relevant to the work of the communities, um, every so often they will be there so that in case, for example, one of us is not available or moves on or something, there is that, that context of a familiar um, of a familiar face. And unfortunately, the, the issue with relationships is that they take time to cultivate. And it, I don't think there is there is a level to which you can minimize the time commitment. But ultimately, if you're working with communities, like you would work with any sort of stakeholder or a collaborative partner, there will be an aspect of you needing to put in the time to keep that connection alive. Yeah, of course, some things don't necessarily have shortcuts. You've already mentioned that this is very much a two-way knowledge exchange and referenced the huge amount of knowledge held by communities outside of university walls. So where community members are instrumental in research, how might their part be better recognised? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the first question is to ask what is important for the people that you're working with? You know, how do they define their contribution? What would recognition look like? in their eyes and you might not you might not always have to ask it so directly but you just need to be sensitive and you need to ask the right questions at the right time to understand what it means to be recognized to them and to what extent they want to be involved right so some people might be very happy to co-produce with you and co-write an article some people might be happy being um, acknowledged some people for some people for example the way we did it when you very kindly invited us to um, the dinner the gala dinner it was an utmost priority for us to bring the key stakeholders and the key community partners to the table and the gala to make sure that they know no no we are celebrating this together this is our work that we we did together it's not us academics versus you know you who just supported us no it's like it's our common success so there are many different ways in which you can do it sometimes it could be things like um enabling enabling authoring blog posts providing different perspectives sometimes um it might be about listening sometimes perhaps the community will represent the viewpoint that you know you as an academic you think yeah but you know i need to be quite objective or i need to sort of um consider everybody's viewpoint not just you know this particular communities so it's about acknowledging and knowing to what extent they need to feel um secure they need to feel happy and confident that they can trust you but also understanding what do they deem to be important in as acknowledgement and sometimes it could be things like putting on events together it could be allowing people to bring their own guests it could be having input into the design of an event or design of an activity or thinking about asking questions together okay what sort of outcomes do we envision what would work for you and these are the sort of um, the sort of things where if you think about the whole cycle of a project from the design to delivery to the outcomes you know just asking yourself okay how can I include my community to what extent am I sure that I know what they might want out of this part of the project yeah that has got to come back to the earlier point you made about the need to actually take the time to get to know those that you are working with we've got to end it here so thank you so much for joining us Anna you've shared some really really useful insight I think for anyone either approaching a project like this or considering how they might improve their community engagement whether it be in their research or their teaching so thank you so much for joining us thank you very much
Okay, really, really interesting conversation with Anna there. Um, and about halfway through, I liked how she was talking about when you asked her about the practical elements of community engagement. And I liked how she was talking about investment and capacity building, that it, this can't just be one researcher going out and engaging with the community, that there might actually need to be a budget involved in this. There might need to be actual job roles created in order to support this research. So I thought that was hopefully quite helpful for people to understand what the actual scope of an endeavor like this includes. Yeah, absolutely. That that it does require that sort of more holistic investment in both human capital and, and potentially occasionally, you know, financial support for those that are getting involved. I think the other thing I really liked was actually her ending point, which when I asked around how the community sort of members who'd been involved in research could be better recognised, she didn't give a sort of straight this is what we should do answer. She actually said, well, the key is really to find out what recognition will work best for them, which I also thought was a very good message for anyone working with external stakeholders, community members to consider. Mm, Yeah, and that also reflects her point when she was saying that um, community work has kind of shifted from being this extractive exercise into something that now has quite a few ethical questions around it and people needing to take into consideration how they are actually engaging with the community. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with a topic like, you know, gender hate crime, which is a very, very difficult topic to approach certain, you know, to, to approach people with because it is by its very nature charged with emotive and and potentially quite trauma um, infused thinking, which, I mean, I suppose in a way there was a link there with, um, you know, your conversation with Lindsay, again, dealing with a potentially tricky topic. Mm, Yeah, that's right. I actually, I had forgotten what um, the Anna and her team's research covered gender hate crime. And yes, that fits quite nicely with um, the conversation I had with Lindsay Morgan at Edinburgh Napier University. Um, Her team did a whole campaign around period poverty um, and all about fighting taboos, but they did it in quite um, an interesting and fun and humorous way. But there's a lot of substance to it as well. And they've had quite a bit of success um, with getting funding from the Scottish government on this campaign. Um, They're expanding. They've been working with people in Uganda and all around the world to show a documentary that they've created. And it's something that they want to even show as mandatory in secondary school curriculums to really spread the word about um, period poverty and how this affects people way beyond just the time when you have your period. It affects people's ability to um, budget every month or maybe they don't go to work because they can't afford the right um, resources in order to deal with this. So this is actually a campaign that won the Outstanding Contribution to Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at last year's awards. So here's what Lindsay and I talked about. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Times Higher Education podcast. Tell us a little bit about the campaign for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, okay, so Bleeding SAR started way back in 2018. It was launched in response to the Scottish Government pledge to provide free products for all people in education. But we kind of thought that doesn't go far enough. And also, how will they deliver that? Um, we firmly believe that products should be accessible to everybody. And um, also that we really needed to break down the the stigma and the shame and taboo around menstruation as well for it to be really successful. So yeah, we started in in 2018. We 
gathered a collective of students to work on the project and, and the project had various strands. Um, the main two strands were design and film and the design strand focused on a sort of a social media campaign and a university campaign to break down barriers and the taboo um, and also to design dispensers for Hey Girls who are our project partners. Um, these dispensers they designed are now at sort of locations up and down the country in bathrooms for accessible for all. Um, and the documentary was created by our film students and sort of chartered our journey through the whole process, including going to Uganda to meet with lots of, of great organisations, tackling um, the challenges of period poverty um, from an international perspective. Mm. And for people who don't speak Gaelic, what does SAR mean? Ah, so bleeding SAR, uh, SAR means free in Gaelic. Hmm. So bleeding free. Bleeding free. Yeah, we really wanted our project to have a Scottish identity because um, I think Scotland is world leading in making these changes for for menstrual dignity, for access to products for everybody. Um, obviously, we didn't know the Scottish government was, was going to, to make this call, that it would be free for everybody in the end. Um, we like to think we were part of that campaign, but yeah, I do think Scotland's world leading and we wanted to give it our own our own Scottish identity, hence, hence the name. So you said that it was um, inspired by this decision by the Scottish government to provide period products for free to everyone who needs it. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you maybe identified this problem and how you perhaps were confident that it would resonate with your campus community and now with a, a wider community around the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think from a personal perspective, do you know, I, I once saw in a supermarket a, an actual security tag on a, a pack of um, pads and I just thought, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's such an essential item for anybody. Um, but actually one in five um, people in Scotland experience period poverty at some point in their life. And that includes many, many of our students. And what we discovered is that, you know, students will miss classes. They can't sometimes go to work to earn an income simply because they don't have this, this basic item that everyone should have access to. Um, and we knew that our student population experienced this. And we also knew that that the, the sort of shame, the taboo about talking about it, the idea that if you revealed, yeah, you know, I'm on my period, that that could actually be held against you in a work context or an education context had to be broken down. Um, the response from our students has been amazing. It's an ongoing collective. And at this point, I think we're talking around 60 students who have contributed in one way or another, bringing their creative skills to the project. So tell me a little bit more about that. You said that students created the documentary and they were involved in the a graphic design element to it. Tell me a bit more about how students were involved in this. So across loads of different ways, I mentioned the two strands. So we had a lot of film and TV students working on the documentary. We had a core design team working on the dispensers and the campaign. But actually, we have had a student photographer who's taken loads of great images. We have a team of publishing students who created our education booklet, which accompanies the film Bleeding Free. 
Um, we have had events, students who organised our bloody big brunches, which was across all three campuses back in March 2019. Um, honestly, it goes on from there. there. There's been so many creative students that have contributed in, what, in one way or another. Just with the name of it and the, the bloody big brunches, you guys are really really leaning into wordplay and, and making it kind of shaking off the taboo by just talking about exactly what this is, but in a very humorous way. How intentional was that using humor as a tool to get your message across? Really intentional. Um, we knew that humor was essential in breaking down the barriers because for a lot of the older generation, it's just an uncomfortable thing to talk about. So you bring in some humor, it lightens the mood. Similarly, um, you know, it is an important topic and it's to do with women's health and their well-being. Um, but that's very serious and to make this loud and fun and attract the attention of everybody in the whole university community we knew humour had to be part of it so we used a bit of wordplay things like ovary stop ovary reacting and it's only blood and um, it worked well and actually at our bloody big brunches we had a lot of period th themed food and drink um, which I think, you know, probably did shock some people. They were a bit kind of like, oh, this is unpleasant, but it definitely got them talking. And that was what we wanted. It was a really lively event. It was staff, it was students, we had visitors. And yeah, it really brought the whole university community together behind this project. You've mentioned a few organizations and you said that you were in Uganda looking at period poverty there. Tell us a bit about the collaborations um, that you established with this project and, and who those were and kind of how important they were to its success. There were a lot of partners on this project um, and they were really important um, to its success because period poverty is a global issue. There, there's not a country in the world where people don't experience it. Um, and we needed to look at what other people were doing. We needed to look at good projects. Um, and just kind of get an international perspective of, of what was going on. In Uganda, there are so many amazing organisations working in menstrual health, providing products, and also helping people to set up businesses where they provide maybe pads for other women in their community. So we met with iRise International, which is a great organisation um, doing menstrual health work in Uganda. Days for Girls was another organisation we met. Um, yeah, lots and lots of different organisations. Uh, Maca Pads, which is connected with Makeri University, which actually makes pads out of bamboo, which is really cheap and easy to produce. Interestingly, they, they supply um, all the pads for the, there's a massive uh, refugee camp in, in northern Uganda, one of the biggest in the world, I think, and they provide for that camp because it's cheap, it's easy to produce and um, also is more sustainable as well. So all of these um, organisations are touched on in the documentary and you hear some really great um, points of view. Um, from different from different people. Girl Up Uganda is another great one that we highlighted in the film. And if somebody wanted to watch the film, where would they be able to find it? So the film isn't available to stream yet. It's still circulating with lots of screenings. We have a screening at the Scottish Parliament on 20th of December, 
which is really exciting. Um, we're actually going to Frankfurt in Germany this week to screen it at the University of the Applied Sciences. Um, but if, if you really want to see the film, you can reach out to us um, via the contact details on the Bleeding Free website and we'll be happy to arrange a screening and eventually we hope that it, it will be available via a streaming network for, for everyone to see. Um, we'd also really like it to become compulsory viewing in secondary schools because I think the film just charters this moment in time that's really important and um, it has that sort of message of there being no shame, no taboo in menstruation and that it's important that, that everyone's educated about it, boys and girls. Sure, I mean, it affects half the population, so yeah, everybody needs absolutely. to know about it. Um, we're talking about a documentary, we're talking about brunches, we're talking about international travel. I wonder if people listening to this might be thinking cost. And if I wanted to do something like this, this would be quite expensive. Tell us about how you funded all of this. So we didn't, you know, find one funder who was just like, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out with that. It was pulling money together from lots and lots of different places. Um, for example, to for the students to travel to Uganda, we tapped into the Santander Mobility Fund, which supports student mobility. So that covered their travel. We were also able to use some teaching fellows funding um, because this was such a cross-discipline um, active learning experience, they were happy to support it. Um, the Scottish Government provided a lot of funding which supported um, our initiatives as well. Um, and, and we got some, some funding from the principal's office in our own university. So we kind of pulled together funding from all these different locations and eventually had enough to, to make everything happen. The it students, oh sorry, the students were also really clever that were on the project. They did bake sales and they made merch, which we sold at the brunches and uh, they crowdfunded. So yeah, lots of different sources that we pulled together the funding to make this happen. So some kind of DIY grassroots style funding and then more of the traditional kind of applying to grants. Exactly. And was it, was it an easy sell? to the Santander Fund, for example, or maybe to the government? Was it an easy sell or was it a, a difficult one to get your point across? Because it is perhaps such a new and taboo subject. Interestingly, um, you know, there wasn't any funding that we applied for that we were turned down, which did surprise us because we thought this is going to be a hard sell. But I've mentioned a lot I think the moment in time we decided we need to do something about this was a really pivotal moment. The Scottish Government had pledged free projects for education. Monica Lennon was working towards um, it being accessible to everybody. And I think it, it was this moment in time where people had had enough and they said, actually, do you know what? women shouldn't have to pay for this everybody should have access there should be no shame no taboo we should be able to talk about it so there was an appetite and I think perhaps had this been 10 years earlier we'd have really struggled mm. so it's kind of that it was on the the national agenda and in the public the public eye a little bit I think so yeah and um you know we had a great team the project leaders Ruth Kirsten and I really cared about this um our students really really cared about this i you know i think they put in more effort and love behind it than than anything they've done before so yeah that's what's yielded these these results what sort of advice would you give to other people at institutions who are quite inspired by what you've done with this project 
what advice would you give them on how to identify their own bleeding SAR campaign at their own institution? And there are so many issues happening with students around the world with the cost of living crisis in the UK, global climate crisis. There are probably tons of local issues as well that people will be aware of in their own communities. What advice would you give them on how to focus on just one thing that would really have a big impact? I guess, um, you know, listen to your students. Um, they will tell you the things that are affecting them, read the newspapers, see what's going on. Um, there's always new social issues that students can be bringing their skills to and addressing from a young perspective. And um, I think that, uh, you know, just simple observation of what's in the papers at the moment, what's affecting our students. We know, for example, that trans rights is a really important issue at the moment. Um, I think that all academics have, you know, an awareness of, of what's going on in the world around them and what's affecting their students. So don't be afraid to talk about it to them. And also don't be afraid to think, oh, well, do you know, that wouldn't work because of this time timing of this module and that wouldn't work. Do you know, kind of problem solve. Be like, we want to do this. Let's make it happen. Let's find solutions rather than, than look at the barriers that we have. Hmm. Final question. You wrote a resource for THE Campus about how to really tackle taboo subjects. What would be your one tip for anyone who wants to bring in a taboo subject, either to their classroom conversation or in a very public campaign like this? Ooh, what would be my top tip? I would probably say collaboration would actually be my top tip. Whatever social issue, whatever thing you want to tackle in your project or campaign. There are lots of organisations in the world already addressing this, already doing great things. So reach out to, to charities, to, to businesses, to big organisations, think internationally, um, collaborate and connect because there's no point in sort of reinventing the wheel over and over again if people are already doing stuff. Um, see what's happening and see, well, what could we add to this? What, you know, this is all going on. This is great. This gives us the background. What can we add? What can we change specifically? And then, and then take it from there. Great. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time and for giving us a bit more information and, and ideas behind the Bleeding Star campaign. Thank you. Yeah, it was lovely to chat to you. Thanks. I know you mentioned this before we heard the interview, but I have to say, I think I want to go back to that point of the use of humour here. I think it's such a clever approach they took to dealing with a taboo topic, one that some people find deeply embarrassing or kind of shameful to speak about. And I think so often people are quite scared to apply humour to what they consider serious topics. And yet, as this shows, it's such an effective way to make something accessible. Mm, mm. Yeah, definitely. And I love that um, Lindsay's top tip was collaboration, which is also something that Anna said and just how important it is to um, expand your knowledge of a topic by seeing what other people are doing and kind of figuring out what you can add to that conversation and where you and your specific community might be able to fit into that.
Um, so as you may have heard in those interviews, both Anna and Lindsay have written resources for us about their awards that they won last year, which we will link to um, in the notes for this episode, as well as the Bleeding SAR website and um, Anna's researchers website. And if you want to hear more from this year's award shortlistees, we have, as Sarah mentioned at the beginning, pulled together a special collection of resources contributed by the individuals and teams who are in the running for a title this week. Um, so do head over to timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus to take a look. And we'll also link to that. And who knows? I'm sure there's a couple of winners among those resources. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye bye. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. <laughs>